0: This afternoon, we return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, Maitri. You'll of course recall yesterday, we really focused on Maitri for ourselves. And now today, I think you can probably anticipate, we'll start almost like an earthquake out in the ocean, where it starts in one place and then the ripple goes out in all directions. But this is a very gentle tsunami destroys nothing, it's a tsunami of blessing. Yeah. So it's a tsunami of loving-kindness going out in all directions. Some of you have asked me during this retreat that clearly it's primarily a retreat for the practice of shamatha. You've asked me, you know, how many sessions shall we have each day in our own private practice? Or each of these four immeasurables or Vihara's divine abidings. So what should be the percentage? And I don't have an answer for that. I don't want to have an answer for that. Oh, it should be eighty percent. It should seventy percent. Ninety percent. But rather, this should be this should be fluid. It should be intuitive. It should be from the heart, right? Because one of these one one thing that's quite obvious is that in terms of the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, there's no way we can force it. If you're, if you're saying, all right, I really have to do this, Alan said I had to do this three times a day. I've only done it once. Oh boy, okay, well, okay, loving kindness, here we go. All right, sentient beings, here I come. You know? <laughs> you know? That's not going to work very well, right? So we can't force it. And so let it be intuitive, be, be very, very gentle. The more the mind does become calm, the more you find a sense of inner ease, a relaxation, a balance, perhaps even a sense of well being coming up then it's going to be easier to come out. It's quite clear, isn't it, that when the mind is very disturbed, if we're very upset about something, anxious about something, it's very difficult, really, to attend in a loving, gentle, open, affectionate way to other people. Even our own family is hard, because we're so caught up in our own concerns. So the more there's this kind of loosening, this unraveling, this melting within, it's just easier. So, why not go easier route? But however the balance may be, whether you're just doing one practice, one session each day, the one we do together, or whether you're doing another one, two, three, three more each each day. However it is, it's your choice. But the major emphasis here I would, in, I would suggest would be in between sessions. In between sessions. So Even if you only do one session here formally in the cultivation of these Brahma Viharas, in between sessions, as you're just moving about, uh, you're going to the dining hall, you're going for a walk, and so forth, going to the swimming pool. It's just bound to be the case. You can't avoid it. Sentient beings will come into your field of experience. It's the dogs out on the road there. It's the, those little tiny, kind of little, I don't know, centipedes, like little commuter trains. They're always going. You wonder how many passengers are they carrying, right? Always, some, always going someplace. And so it's sentient beings all over the place, Our, the wonderful staff here, our fellow meditators, and so forth, or if you're out and about, you may see villagers going about their their work, their lives. So wherever you, as you're just walking in between sessions, as sentient beings come into your field of awareness, then just keep your heart open. And if you see them enjoying themselves, you know, sometimes the dogs are playing, or you see other people enjoying, or somebody really quite clearly in the zone in their meditation, right? It happens. Then. Quite, why not? Mudita. Okay? Empathetic joy. Oh, so good, so good. Carry on. Happy, happy. You know? Like this dog. This dog of ours who's adopted us, seems one of the happiest dogs I've met. It's so light. The dog seems to dance. I have not many dances. Her feet hardly touch the ground. And she's always just ready to, want to play? <laughs> you know? Pretty happy dog. I think very, very good karma dog. If you have to be a dog, be born in the mind, you know, move to the mind center. It's pretty good karma for a dog, right? So, happy dog. Well, be happy for the happy dog. A lot of dogs not so happy. This is a pretty happy dog, right? So, whether it's just the happiness of a dog, or you see somebody really devoting themselves to practice, many occasions for Mudita. And then just generally speaking, you might recall the line from Shantideva. I think it's in his chapter on Samprajanya in the Bodhicharivatara. Whereas he says, as you're just out about in the marketplace, engaging with other people, as your attention alights, like a butterfly alighting on a flower, as your attention alights on one person after another, just consider, if it's a person of a lower genera- younger generation, as if your own children. More or less the same generation, your brother and sister. Elder generation, your parent. you know, And just look upon them, and then what Chandadeva suggested here, as you simply attend to them, Not you're attending to them, but how are you attending to them? How? Right? A man can look at women as, oh, sexually attractive, not attractive, whatever. That's one way. Not useful. Not useful. It's a habit, but not useful. But another way of attending to men, women, and so forth, as Shantideva suggested, simply consider, oh, it's independence upon people like this, just people exactly like this, that I have the opportunity to, to practice Dharma. You know that's so obviously the case with the staff here. If they're not taking care of us, we're not ready to drive off to Phuket Town to buy our, all our groceries and so forth and so on. But also the villagers, who's growing the food? Well, people just like the ones around us. You know, so attend to them th- and just already in a spirit of gratitude, ah, because if exactly people just like this, maybe actually those people, then I'm able to live happily and devote myself to practice. So having that sense of connectedness. Recall that statement by the Dalai Lama, when asked, do you ever feel lonely? He said, no, I always feel the sense of connectedness, right? So, you may have a very rich cultivation of these four immeasurables, even if you only spend 24 minutes each day formally practicing them. If you find that that's 24 minutes, it's like a little pump that flows, and then it flows out in between sessions. And the whole day is blessed by the one session. Now there are different approaches, this may be the final point for right now, the different approaches to the cultivation of these four immeasurables, in a sense of all of the boundaries eventually breaking down, and that is, and they're both valid, they're both valid. And one of these is to consider what are the absolutely core modes of meditation within Buddha Dhamma. There's no difference here from Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana. There's no difference. There really is a, there really is a right answer. Uh, the great Tibetan master Tsongkhapa pointed this out, but, but I really think he, he speaks for all of Buddhism when he said Buddhist meditation fundamentally boils down to two types of practice shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha and vipassana. That's Tsongkhapa speaking, so he's a great Mahayana adept, of course. But he's saying, well, if it's not vipassana, then everything else, the bodhicitta, the brahmi-veharas, everything else, that flows into shamatha. Consider the, consider the, the meditation chapter of, of Bodhicharavatara. It's called jhana, right? That's shamatha. And what does he fill it with? Bodhicitta, right? So if we consider this, that the core practices that are really, I think really, actually it's true, unique to the buddhidhamma, and really absolutely core to proceeding along the path to liberation, shamatha vipassana, shamatha vipassana. In that regard, then one way of evaluating, one way of viewing the four immeasurables is that these four immeasurables are there to help us to nurture, to sustain, to inspire, to aid us in the cultivation of shamatha and vipassana. Now those of you who have been practicing for a while now, especially those, you know, practicing more than a week and a half, you know that when you start going deeply into shamatha practice, let alone vipassana, it can very easily stir up a lot of emotions, desires, memories, all kinds of stuff, right? Not necessarily, but it's common. In which case, as sometimes really strong emotions arise, sadness, fear, could be anger, craving, whatever it is, as this is coming up, sometimes it's quite difficult to handle. You know, it seems like this is a bit bigger than I am. But that's exactly where the four immeasurables can really be enormously helpful. They're coming to aid you to restore the emotional balance, to heal, to balance, to re-establish your equilibrium. So in that regard, the four immeasurables are very, very practical for just removing obstacles and kind of blessing or inspiring, empowering your practice of Samatha Vipassana on the one hand. So that's very very valid. And the Theravada tradition, I think it's quite explicit. That these four immeasurables are really designed there. They're intrinsically valuable. They are clearly punya. They're clearly kusala. They are virtue. So they're a value in and of themselves. But their primary utility, I think, hopefully hope it's not a bad word, but what their usefulness is to really help you achieve liberation by way of shamatha vipassana. So that's something valid on the one hand. On the other hand, one consider. One can, t- one can adopt the, uh, the Bodhisattva ideal, Bodhisattva perspective, and think, what's the point of Vipassana? What's the point? Well, liberation. And we'll still ask the question again, what's the point? Your own liberation. Is that enough? Are you content now? You're liberated? You're leaving all other sentient beings behind, but good luck, you know? Yes. And then you're finished? Or is your own liberation an act of service for a greater good. And that is why achieve liberation? So that you can be of greatest possible benefit to the world around you. Again, if we're considering, oh, I'd love to alleviate the suffering of others, how can we alleviate the suffering of others if we've not alleviated our own suffering? And if we're thinking not only suffering, but actually really thinking about the root causes of suffering. Really think about the root causes of suffering. Otherwise, it seems like it's always treating symptoms. We're treating poverty, but then why is there poverty? Was it really not enough, or was the poverty, in fact, because of people's craving, hostility, delusion, racism, genocide, and so forth? Really, what were the causes? Where there's conflict among nations, conflict among people, there is suffering, clearly. But where did that come from? And so often, I think we can trace it back to the root. Well, if we really want to help people from the inside out, from the source... Then we need to be effective in helping others. Uh, how do you say? Be healed or freed from the delusion, the craving, hostility. But then it's almost like a joke, you know. Like it's me having leprosy, and saying, "Oh, I want to help you have lepro- I want to help- I free you of leprosy." And here are my hands are falling off, you know. So it's almost like a joke. I'm trying to help you achieve something that i have that I've not even achieved myself. Say, well, why are you trying to help me? Why don't you? Get, get over it yourself first, you know, you're not inspiring me here, you know. A little embodiment of craving, hostility, delusion, you're going to help me. Maybe, maybe I'm going to catch something from you. Maybe it's going to be more contagious, right? And so if we consider to be a really greatest benefit to others, we have to purify our own minds. We need to achieve liberation, if possible, even the, the enlightenment of a Buddha. In that regard, from that perspective, then the cultivation of the four immeasurables is not simply to assist us in the cultivation of shamatha vipassana, which it does, but the shamatha vipassana then turns around and enhances and empowers the four measurables, becomes the conveyor of much greater benefit outside. So it's going inside, it's going outside, and both have their own validity. All right? But the final, final point. You always know, look out when I say final. I don't quite mean final. And that is as we, and this is where we'll go in just a couple of minutes now, as we are arousing the aspiration, because maitri, or loving kindness, is an aspiration for well-being. In fact, I'll bring in one more element from the Bodhisattva. The Tibetan, the Tibetan uh, how do you say, liturgy here, is, I'll just say it in Tibetan. I won't give you all of it, but I'll give you most of it. Why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness and the causes of happiness? Why couldn't? It's actually a question. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we? It's kind of like, why couldn't we? You know, it's like, really? What's wrong? Is there something intrinsic in any sentient being that says, no, you can't possibly find happiness. So sorry, forget you, you know. Or forget me, oh, and no, I'm too screwed up, you know. But chimarung, why couldn't we? Why couldn't we? Kind of really thinking about what's the nature of the mind? And is it really contaminated all the way down? Or are we intrinsically afflicted? Or are these klesha, simply obscurations that need to be removed? And then we see this brightly shining mind. This brightly shining mind, just waiting to be unveiled, of the nature of bliss, you know? So it's asked first, why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness, genuine happiness, and the causes of happiness? So there's a good question. And that already arouses some sense of possibility and the aspiration, right? And then it continues. It raises the question and then it says, chik May we so, may we be so endowed, may we indeed find happiness and the causes of happiness. Then it's really loving kindness. Okay? Well, first of all, why couldn't we? Let us, may we, may we do so? Second one. And that's loving kindness, right? And that can go to boundless loving kindness. But then if we want to go to Maitri, now again in the Bodhisattva context, Maitri, great, great loving kindness. Denbara may we find happiness and the causes of happiness. And then the next phrase, denbara daki I take that upon myself. I shall do it. I, sh- I take on the responsibility that we may all find happiness and the causes of happiness. So it's actually making it personal. Say, okay, on my shoulders. On my shoulders. May it be so. May it be so. Right? So when we think... Final, final, final. The <laughs> Think about happiness, think about many ways we seek happiness. You get an education. I went to some very good colleges, hoping to get a good education. I was fortunate. I did, but I could have failed out. I could have flunked out. I could have gotten sick. I could have gotten bored. Oh, all kinds of. I could have just, you know, all kinds of things could have happened. People get married, thinking, "Oh, I'll get married. I'll be so happy." Well, sometimes, sometimes not. You know. Oh, I want to be happy. I'll have children. They'll be very happy and healthy, and they'll love me a lot. Well, maybe, maybe not. Oh, I'll start a business. That's what I'll do. I'll start a business. Maybe, maybe not. All of our investment in hedonic well-being, mundane well-being, all of our investment seems a little bit like going to a casino. Oh, I'm feeling lucky. I think black. I'm really feeling black on the roulette wheel. I'm feeling lucky. It's gonna, I'm going to invest in black you're not investing your betting right and then it comes out but then once once the roulette wheel starts turning whether it's black or red or 00, or double zero, zero is out of your control you're not really investing your betting right and so when we do all these activities for the sake of mundane happiness we're betting in the great roulette wheel of samsara Hoping, black, go 23, go 23, oh no, double zero, you know, know, it's betting. Whereas every moment, and this is really the strong point, and it will be the last point. It's the same point. (laughs) Part two. (laughs) Every moment, but consider if this is true. If this is true, I think it's important. Every moment, with a pure motivation, that you're really here to purify your own mind, Cultivate virtue. Breathing in, breathing out. Every moment of just arousing a sense of loving kindness. Every moment. Regardless of whether you have a heart attack halfway through the retreat, halfway through the meditation session, or you die tonight in your sleep, or you live another 50 years, no matter what happens in the next moment or the next day, that's not gambling. That's not a roulette. Every moment with pure motivation that we're practicing Dharma. It's already good. It's already an investment. It's different. It's different. Every moment, regardless of what happens in the very next moment, it's already, that's an investment, that's an investment. Every moment, it's kusala, kusala, kusala. It's virtue, virtue, virtue. So whatever comes in the future, it's got to be good, because this is an investment, this is not gambling. So they can't be, if you really want to understand it, there's no grounds for regret. So you come here thinking, oh, maybe I'll, I'll go so far in shamatha. Maybe I'll achieve this, maybe I'll achieve that. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But every moment that you're here and devoting yourself to Dharma practice, that's investment. It's really, di- it's different. It's different. It's already good. So with total confidence, this was time well spent. No matter what. Live a short life, long life, have quick results in the practice, slow results, many obstacles, few obstacles. This is a direction. This is the path. And samsara is circular. And that's the difference between dharma and samsara. Samsara is a gambling casino and it's circular. Win some, lose some. Dharma, it's winning all the way because it's always good, already good. I completely believe that. And then in that way, there's nothing to do besides dharma. Because who really wants to be a gambler? You know? Let's have one session. 24 minutes. One gatika. According to the Buddhist teachings, there are two ways of cultivating loving-kindness. One to act in a loving and kind way, cultivating loving-kindness from the outside in by way of behavior, and the other from the inside out through the inner meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. Well, in this session, let's do both as an act of kindness, of affection for ourselves And implicitly for all those whom we influence, let's enter into this practice in a spirit of loving kindness, gently, softly, letting your awareness descend into the body and settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. The inner voice of the mind, in effortless silence, by settling your respiration in its natural rhythm, unrestrained and effortless, allowing the body to breathe without modifying or controlling the breath in any way, relaxing deeply with every outbreath, releasing thoughts. And for a little while, settle your mind in its natural state, relaxed, still, and clear by way of mindfulness of breathing in any of the three ways, full body awareness, focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen, or the sensations of the breath at the apertures of the nostrils. Calm the mind and make it serviceable. Now let's move from this quiet mode of awareness to the more active, the imaginative, as we move to the bhavana, the cultivation of loving kindness. First of all, envision your own flourishing. What would truly bring you happiness, both in terms of fulfilling all your mundane mundane needs your worldly needs, and beyond that, what would truly bring you happiness and fulfillment. Imagine what would make you truly happy. Imagining the pure dimension of your own awareness beyond the obscurations of mental afflictions or klesha, imagine this symbolically, if you will, as a radiant orb of clear light at your heart. And with each outbreath, breathe out this light from your heart, filling your whole being, and arouse the yearning. I find happiness and the causes of happiness. Arouse the spirit of loving-kindness for yourself. each out breath letting your imagination play imagine here and now realizing the well-being that is your heart's desire with the quiet confidence that you are indeed truly worthy to find such happiness why not? why couldn't you? find such happiness. And extend the field of this loving kindness, this open, caring and affectionate heart, and invite into the field of awareness someone who is already very dear to you, for whom you feel affection spontaneously from the heart. Attend closely to this person, let it be someone who is alive, not already passed away, And whether right now they are near or far away, bring them vividly to mind and attend to them closely. With the awareness that this person, like yourself, wishes to find happiness, fulfillment, with every outbreath arouse this yearning, may you, like myself, find true happiness and the causes of happiness, and breathe out this light of loving kindness from your heart. Imagine this light flowing forth, embracing, suffusing. Imagine the life fulfilling this person's heartfelt yearning for happiness. With each out-breath, imagine this person finding the joy that he or she seeks. turn your attention now to another dear person, someone who is close to you, perhaps not quite as close, a friend, someone you already care about, for whom you already have a sense of affection. Attend closely to this person. Allow that affection as you attend to the lovable quality in this individual. Allow the response of affection to arise and practice as before. Imagine this person too finding the joy, the well-being, the fulfillment that he or she seeks. Now move yet further out in these concentric circles of people you feel close to. Attend now to a person whom you might know rather well. Perhaps you encounter at work or in the marketplace, a neighbor, could be even a relative, a person whom you know but for whom you have no special feeling of either affection, of attraction or aversion. See if you can bring such a person to mind, a neutral person. attend closely to the reality that this person's joys and sorrows are every bit as real as your own. This person has his or her own aspirations of what would really make this person happy. And this person's well-being is every bit as important, as valuable as your own and that of your dearest friends. This person too is worthy of finding genuine happiness. Attend closely and practice as before. expand the field of your awareness, the field of loving-kindness in all directions, excluding no one, with no barriers, and arouse, if you will, the yearning. Might we all, might each, might each sentient being, find happiness and the causes of happiness. And breathe out this light of loving kindness to the world. For just a moment, release all appearances and objects of the mind, release all aspirations, and let your awareness rest in its own nature, resting in its own place, resting in the knowing of knowing. From my readings of the teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon, and they're limited, I've not read all by any means. But from the reading I have done, when the Buddha would give a certain meditation topic to someone who came to him for guidance, whether a monk, a nun, a lay man, lay woman, from readings I've done, he would Offer them some practice they really could do. You know, try this, in the, very much in the spirit of ehipasi, ehipasika, come and see, come and see. But he gives them something they could really do. I don't recall from my readings, well, first you have to, first of all, you have to believe this. And if you believe that, then you can practice. But first, you have to believe this, right? He did, I don't recall that. There were people that during his time who already believed in rebirth, in which case those teachings might, run, come, might come right in, right? So it, was, it wasn't like he didn't allude to other realms of existence, Rubadhatu, Tattu, and so forth and so on. But that, these ideas were already prevalent. They were already known by contemplatives, by very advanced yogis during the time of the Buddha. But really it was a very practical approach of offering people meditative practices they really could enter into with confidence and then explore for themselves and gain realization. So I think it's very much in the spirit of his teachings that we're starting here with shamatha which we all can do, We don't, whether we believe in rebirth or, or karma or do not, do or do not, we can do it, and I think we can do it with some confidence. And likewise, we don't have to believe in a whole metaphysical framework in order to practice the four measurables. We can just go right in, and then out of the practice, insights develop, understanding may develop, trust, confidence in the Buddhist teachings may develop, in which case then we may very quite easily incorporate insights that are beyond what we've experienced already, and that too can be part of our practice. So I think this is in the spirit of this Ehipasika, this come and see approach that is so characteristic of the Buddhist teachings. So, I'm quite content. And maybe that's why the Dalai Lama told me, you know, when you come to Buket, then teach this. Because whether you're Theravada, you're Mahayana, whether you're Buddhist or not Buddhist, this is something everybody can practice. So, I think he gave very good advice. Ola so. So, quite clearly, we have two respected guests, honored guests. I think you both speak English, yes? Yes. yes. Might, might we ask you, I don't want to embarrass you, but might we ask you to introduce yourselves to the group? That would be okay? I think we, people would be interested to know where you're, where you're from. May we ask you? We have a, a microphone coming. I would like to know myself.
1: Good evening, uh, dear sir, and all practitioners. Uh, I'm Indrajit Barua, and I have been living in Thailand for four years and studying Buddhism. And I'm living at Wat Watt Buddhist temple, Nontaburi. It is near Bangkok. Mm-hmm. And my friend, he's also he's studying Buddhism. But uh, he can understand English well. But still, he's uh, he unable to speak English fluently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's Kamal Barua, mm-hmm. And uh, about four, uh, two years, he has been living in Thailand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where do you come from? You're not born here.
1: Oh. We are Bangladeshi, both of the students. A Bangladeshi, students. Ale. Yes.
0: ale, interesting.
1: And my teacher, Venerable Ajitananda Barua, he's also Bangladeshi, and uh, he contacted and uh, he arranged uh, for us to participate in this retreat here. Yeah, yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it is uh, Buddhist renaissance, uh, three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are theravada monks, we cannot leave more than one week out of the temple. Mm-hmm. So uh, we just arrived yesterday evening. Mm-hmm. And on 3rd September, October, we have to leave, because mm-hmm. uh, if, yeah, it is more than seven, uh, seven nights. So right. our bow will break down. Yeah. So thank you very much, all audience. And thank you very
0: much, sir. Very glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Always blessing having monk come. Hola, so. so we have just one written question that I know of. I read this before. It's a nice practical one. And then we'll have some time just for whoops, open dialogue. So many times, the question goes, many times as soon as I start relaxing into the meditation, I start feeling prana in different parts of my body, and in different ways. Is this considered a type of nyam? Nyam is a Tibetan word, and it's just the strange sensations or experiences that arise catalyzed or, how do you say, started by meditation. So as you know, when you meditate a lot, a lot of emotions, memories, mental sensations, physical sensations can arise. The Tibetan word for that is nyam. So this person is asking, when I experience the prana, the movement of energy in the body, different parts of the body, is this simply considered a type of nyam, a meditative experience that tend to be transient? The answer is yes. You are sure I couldn't give a short answer, but I can. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes I relax and feel no prana. Then I start worrying that I may (laughs) not... I may not be relaxing enough. <laughs> Why do these sensations go away at times? I become used to them and take them to be a good sign. Does it mean anything to feel no nyam at all? No prana? Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful question. Oh, if you feel no prana, then I'm very sorry for you, because that means you're dead. <laughs> right? <laughs> No more prana feeling, that is, my body is completely anesthetized, no sensations at all. If you feel, kind of, you must right now feel some energy in the body, that's prana. But do you feel unusual movements, sensations, tingling, sense of electricity and so forth? Okay, then then we speak of that as being prana. So you're always having some type of experience of prana. But so, a short answer, I actually can give a short answer to this. Um, When these come up, they are nyam, they are simply meditative experiences and you can regard them as a good sign, but I would not, how do you say, emphasize that because then you'll think, oh, I'm not having any prana sensations today oh, maybe I should pray to Buddha, please give me more prana sensations (laughs) so, just relax with it without desire, without fear, there's nothing wrong, so if you have prana sensations, no problem you have prana sensations, no problem intense ones, no problem, very light ones, no problem Really painful ones. Oh, good. That means you're really breaking up blockages. Really pleasant ones. Very good. I like those too. So whatever kind of prana sensations come up, just let them be. Just let them be. Relax around them and then respond to them without hope or fear, without desire or aversion. Just let them be. And crucially, (coughs) it's not just letting them be, but whatever your meditative object is. If it's the breath, simply continue following the breath. Because these can be very distracting. If they're quite painful, they can be distracting. If they're, if they're very pleasurable, that can also be very distracting, right? Don't be distracted. Okay, it's, just one more stimu- it's just one more stimulus. And so whatever it is, pleasant, un- unpleasant, or simply strange, whatever, OK. But just come right back, let's say, to the apertures of the nostrils, if that's where you're focusing. Focus there. Just maintain continuity. And, let the, and for the rest, just let it be, without hope or fear. Having said that, we never want to disengage from common sense. Common sense, really important. So if at any time in the retreat you feel, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm coming down with a disease, maybe, I have, maybe I'm injured, maybe it's, it's, I'm feeling some very strange nyam over here by the liver, very intense, very intense, must be a nyam, and then you find it's appendicitis appendicitis is not a nyam it's appendicitis and you should go to the bangkok hospital so if you consider it if even consider maybe this is a medical condition then treat it as a medical condition so we always want to be very very practical i'll remind you of one story it happened in the shamata project the, the second second retreat i'm p- quite sure there was an older man about my age not very old but <laughs> older and we were maybe two months into the retreat, a three-month retreat. And he came to me for the weekly interview and he said, Oh, I'm experiencing this nyam. My, I'm going blind in the right eye. <laughs> I said, that's not a nyam. Go to the hospital right now. You know, so he had kind of lost a little bit of common sense. You know, I mean, it was simply a natural mistake. I didn't mean to ridicule him at all. But something like that, if you e- consider, might this be a medical condition? If it's a concern, then take that seriously. And then when the doctor says, I see nothing wrong with you, then thank you, doctor, pay your bill, and now you have a nyam. Then <laughs> you just treat it like, okay, this is just one of the things coming up. And it can be all kinds of things. It can be nausea, it can be vertigo, it can be sadness, depression, anxiety, tingling, itching, all kinds of things. But as soon as you know it's nothing to be that needs medical treatment, then just respond with upeksha, with just equanimity, and go back to the practice. That's the fastest way to progress. If we start hoping and fearing that it will continue, that it will stop, whatever, that's just basically retarding our practice. It's like throwing boulders in front of the road, and then you have to, then they block you. Okay? That was the only written question. So, anything else coming up in terms of questions, insights, experiences, anything at all? Otherwise, we'll end early tonight. Wouldn't that surprise you? Yes, Yonam? Microphone way in the back, please.
2: Okay, let me see if I can uh, structure the question well. So, writing this practice, I had this feeling that. Uh, which practice? Uh, the one that we just
0: did. Loving kindness, okay. Yeah.
2: Loving kindness, but also with a feeling to, towards others that um, maybe why they can't be happy.
0: Yeah, why but, can't they be happy? But I,
2: right. I found myself inside a, a Buddha Dharma view.
0: Buddha Dharma view, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So so on the, on the practice, I realized that there are so many, so many views of people of how they are going to be sure. happy. So... Sure. Um, i don't know in your experience how you deal with this when you wish for others happiness and they they don't have they have a totally on dharma view
0: they have a non dharma view maybe yeah. maybe they're behaving in a way completely incompatible with dharma is that what you're saying
2: in a way some people in, a, in another way people may be totally materialistic yes yeah. and some people maybe totally maybe christian yeah in, no? in a way. so so i found out I found out that my hope was always towards may they be happy in a dharma way, in a Buddha dharma way.
0: In a in a what what dharma way? Buddha dharma. Oh, you want the Christians to be Buddha dharma happy?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: They might not agree with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what does that mean? Does it be, to be Buddha dharma happy? What does that mean? Mm. May you be, May you believe in re, reincarnation. May you believe in vulnerable truths. The twelve links of dependent. Is that what you mean?
2: No, but a lot of may. May you maybe train your mind. Maybe may you train your mind and your. Training
0: heart. the mind. Of course, Jesus taught training the mind too. Yeah, Sermon Sur- on the Mount. Yeah.
2: But I found very very little people devote time to that. So.
0: Yeah. Sure, there are many Buddhists that don't practice much. There are many Christians who don't practice much. There's some Christians, I know, like Lawrence Freeman, I know one Greek Orthodox monk. He's spending all of, his, all of his time. He's living as a solo hermit, as a yogi, in Wales, in the United Kingdom. He's living all there by himself in hermitage, just practicing day and night meditating. It's, 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 unra- it's rare, no question. But, it's, but also most Buddhists are not practicing day and night. They're busy with other things too. But your point is, I think, maybe I'm missing your point. My point is that in
2: this practice, I was trying to generate uh, love and wishing them to be happy, but I can't imagine them in a a happy path Mm -hmm. without training their minds.
0: Yeah, good. That's a good point. That's a good point. In that regard, I think it is very helpful to recognize that there are two types of happiness. And this is, this is not just a Buddhist distinction. This is really, it's Aristotle, it's Christianity, it's many wisdom traditions recognize this. Um, and that is there's, so what we've been calling hedonic happiness, worldly happiness. May they have enough to eat. It's hard to be happy if you're really hungry. May they have good health. It's, it's hard, hard to be happy if you're just in really severe pain or you're really afraid you're about to die or you've just had a severe accident and you're wondering whether you ever recover it's hard right? and so simple things like that that their families can be healthy they, they can live in harmony with each other whether they're atheist, they're Buddhist, they're Christian it's hard if you're living in a family where everybody's angry they're fighting with each other and so forth it's difficult everybody around you is so uptight and really, you know, difficult and so these, this hedonic well-being or mundane well-being it's important for everybody even the Buddha went out on alms rounds. He didn't just kind of say, Oh, I don't mind, I'll just be hungry. You know, Even the Buddha would go out on alms rounds for food. When the Buddha was injured, he would get medical care. When the Buddha got ill, he would get medical care. Even the Buddha, right? So, whether you're enlightened, whether you just have no interest in Dharma, this is something that we all share. And I think this is very important because it's easy to feel you know, kind of separate or maybe even, you didn't say this, but maybe even feeling... I'm really quite special, after all, because I'm a Buddhist. I found an authentic path, and that makes me kind of special. You didn't say this, but it it does happen. It happens, Christians feeling, oh, but we're Christians. We follow the one true religion. Muslims can feel the same. Atheists can feel the same. Oh, all you stupid religious people. But we atheists, we found the one true path, and we achieve liberation just by dying. So happy, you know? So it's very easy to think of oneself as being somehow... The Buddha called this grasping onto views. Grasping onto the supremacy of one's own views. And he viewed that as one of the types of delusion, of moha. Right? It's not helping on the path. It doesn't matter what your views are. If you're grasping, oh, my view is supreme. I'm Mahayana. I'm Theravada. I'm Christian. I'm Greek Orthodox. Whatever. It's not helpful. It's just a delusion. And delusion is actually a blockage to liberation. doesn't matter... What you're deluded about, it's still delusion, right? So there's something we can really commonly ground. And of course, if one followed that, then one would never develop any loving kindness for dogs. Yeah. They don't know any about any kind of Dharma, right? Or little children. Little children really are not what Dharma are they practicing. They just want to have fun. You know, they just want to enjoy and not be sad. They're not thinking all oh, liberation. You know? And so the loving kindness really has to be very large. It includes animals, children, old people, intelligent people, unintelligent people, religious people, not religious people, and so forth, and attending to that common ground. This is what really unites these four immeasurables, unites us. We're, we're different. The Dalai Lama has made this point many times. That it won, When it comes to philosophy, to the view, then some may say, oh, the Theravada is the only authentic interpretation of the Buddhist teachings. That Mahayana is heretical. And the Mahayana says, oh, you Theravada, you're very selfish, very small small view. Oh, oh, now we're divided. And then the Mahayana says, oh, but we're Chittamatra, we have the supreme view. Oh, no, 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 you have a false view. We're Majamika. You know, so it, the views tend to divide you know, all over the place, not only in religion. Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, labor and blah, blah, blah. Views are dividing all over the place. And we can't help it because we can't live life without a view. The only way to do that would be to have massive brain damage. Then I have no view. That's because I'm too stupid to have a view. So views do divide. Whereas the loving kindness, the compassion, empathetic joy, and these are universal virtues, religious or not religious. So that's why I think especially as as, as laying a foundation here in our mind center, laying a foundation for something that unifies. And so that's what the four measurables really do. So that said... One way that the cultivation of loving kindness can be manipulative. Manipulative is oh I attend let's say to Jenny and I think, Oh, may Jenny be happy. Jenny, this is how you need to be happy. You know. Never mind what you want. I know better. This is what you really need you should be happy in this way, and I want you to achieve shamatha this way, and then when you've achieved shamatha, then don't stop, and I want you to practice this type of vipassana, you listening? Okay, this is how you're gonna be really happy. And then I want you to go here and spend three years in retreat, and you'll be happy that way. You listen up, this is your happy. And so I'm basically just, it's manipulation, right? I know better, I know better. I'm not listening. I'm not listening when I do that. What is Jenny's view? What is Jenny's aspiration? You know. That's not loving, to ignore the other person's aspiration. How can that be loving? That's the opposite of loving, right? So this is why loving-kindness really begins by attending closely to. And so whether it's a dog, whether it's a child, a religious person, not religious person, as we engage with them, as we talk with people, engage with them, then we can listen, We we can get some sense. What is it you feel would make you happy? What would make you happy? And people have their own ideas. I'd like to get a good education. Young people, I know one young man. He'd really like to get a good, he's quite young. He'd like to get a good education. That's not akusala, that's not non-virtue. There's nothing wrong with that. And if that's what he really wants now, if that's the highest priority, then I want him to get a good education. Why not? That's not away from Dharma, right? Now, is that getting the good education? Is that going to bring him all the way to liberation? No. But neither will shamatha. Not all the way to liberation. Neither neither will the four immeasurables all the way to liberation. And so, but that's not akusala, the only type of desire that other people would have, that we really would not want to say, oh yes, may it be so, if it's an unwholesome desire, a really harmful desire. I'd like to get so rich by robbing, robbing banks. Oh, may I be a really successful bank robber? Well, we can't go with that one. Right? And so, but apart from those, if they're just neutral desires, oh, I'd like to see wanting to get a good education is not by nature virtue, but it's clearly not non virtue So then our heart opens and we see, ah, loving-kindness is very large. i like to get a really good meal. i like to have a happy marriage. If what you really want is a happy marriage, then may you find a happy marriage. You know? Because otherwise, if what you really want is a happy marriage, and I say, I want you to become a monk, I want you to become yogi. But I don't want to be yogi. I don't want to be monk. I want a happy marriage, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then they're not going to be a happy monk. They're going to be an unhappy person who wanted to get married and was forced into becoming a monk. You know, and I think that has happened on occasion. So, big heart, big view. And if we take the, the life of the Gautama as an example, it's quite a good one. And there are many cases of this in Buddhism. Is that really... For this one individual, the historical Buddha, Gautama, at the age of 29, really, what more could he want in terms of hedonic pleasure? What more could he want? He had a beautiful wife, he had a healthy ch- child, and it was a son. That was kind of important because they want to, you know, in the classic Indian tradition, you want a son to pass on your lineage. Men want that. Well, he got a son, he didn't have a daughter. If he'd had a daughter, who knows? It could have been a different story. You know. But he had a son. And he had everything he wanted, a promising career, you know. And so everything was taken, there was really, what more do you want? You even have extra women on the side. You know, some men like that. Well, even had that. And so there was nothing more. And in a way, once you have everything and you see this has absolutely no chance of bringing genuine happiness. Then you have two options, in a way. Well, you have three options. You can just shut down your imagination and say, this is as good as it gets, okay, I'll just enjoy it. Okay, okay, bring on more happiness, okay, whatever. I'll get old, I'll get sick, and I'll die. But, well, that's, I'm just human, what do I expect? So just be complacent. Stop having any imagination. That's a possibility. Another possibility is to get really depressed and think, I got everything, and it's not, it's not really giving me happiness. I hoped it would, it's not. But since I got everything and there's nothing else, then just be depressed. That's a possibility. Or the other possibility is maybe I better look elsewhere and not expect my harem or my wife or my child or a job or living circumstances, not expect that to deliver me on a silver platter, genuine happiness. Maybe I have to cultivate it from inside and then that opens up a whole new avenue. But as long as people are really looking outwards, hoping there, they're not going to look very deeply in here, one way or another. So, in this way, then, I think we can sincerely hope or aspire, may you find the happiness you seek. And if even it's mundane, may you find that. And then when you see how limited it is, that it's worthwhile having enough to eat and so forth and so on, but when you see it really is limited, then you'll be really ready to practice Dharma. Whereas if you try to devote yourself single-pointedly to Dharma, but what you really are, you're still thinking, oh, but I could have had so much fun. I could have had such a good life if I just found the right man, the right woman, the right job. But, well, okay, I'll try being a monk instead. Or being a yogi instead. It's going to be split. It'll never be wholehearted, single-pointed. Because you won't think, oh, that could have worked out. I just wasn't lucky enough. I didn't try hard enough. I should have found a better person to be my lover or whatever. If you still think that, lots of luck. So, good. Anything else? Yes, Jacob. Thank you. So uh, there are, I guess, some famous stories about this. But I'm, I think there's, up until the modern times, also um, accounts of people, uh, high-level practitioners, who are able to, like, um, the example I'm thinking of is a Togmei Zampo, like when someone Togmei Zampo, um, yeah. I guess the story I heard is someone threw a rock at a dog as he was doing a t- giving a teaching, and he fell. Oh off yes, rock, like practice. Kind of yeah, yeah. So. Um, my question is actually two parts. One is, um, at what point in a person's development as a practitioner can their practice of the four measurables have this kind of effect on others, actually directly? And then, according to the functioning of karma, how does this? According to the, the functioning of karma, how does this work? Right, right, right. Okay, you're going into very deep waters, and very complex waters. The question is, in case it wasn't all clear. Uh, There's a story, I didn't know what it's toymetsambo, it might be, I thought it came from India, uh, of a person practicing tonglen, where one is sending out loving kindness, and imagine drawing in the suffering of others with compassion. So drawing in the suffering of others and imagine sending them one's virtue, one's joy. And so this practitioner, whoever it was, Tibetan or Indian, in a way it doesn't matter. But the story is that this person was deeply in meditation, practicing, the tonglen, the loving kindness, the compassion, and, but really sincerely wishing, may I take on the suffering of others. It was not fake. It was not just a little technique, right? And As he was practicing, he saw a dog uh, that somebody threw a rock at the dog, hit it in the flank, and created a wound. And the dog was arr, arr, you know, yipping anguish, really in pain. And the yogi immediately directed his attention to the dog that was in such pain, and practiced tonglen, may I take upon myself the pain of this wound, right? And in that instant, a pain, a, a wound appeared on his own thigh, and the dog was healed. Now that is a story. So one may disbelieve it. That's fine. I don't care. But let's imagine it's true. Just so I and I, because I know what the source is. I'm going to say. I'm going to say. Okay. I believe that's true. That could happen. Why did it happen? Well, number one, this would be an indicator that this yogi was very advanced in this practice, that his his compassion was very deep, and he actually really did yearn for that result. He was happy when he saw, when attending to the reality of of the dog, and he saw now the dog is relieved of suffering, is soothed, is calmed, is peaceful. His happiness in that overwhelmed the physical station of the pain in his own thigh where the wound opened up. Right? He was actually happy with that. So that's pretty intense. That's clearly, this person has accomplished. Now, should one take that as a sign of success, that one was, it was one's Dong practice is really not working until one can actually take on the suffering of others? That's a bit raising the bar too high. The Buddha himself said, you know, I can't simply take other people's suffering. I can't simply take other people's mental afflictions. You know, oh, you have a mental affliction, you know, craving, hostility. Oh, I'll take it on my... He said, I can't do that, right? And so that's where karma comes in. So it is complex. I'll try to give try to give a concise answer, though. And that is... But it goes into... And now we're clearly in a Buddhist worldview. So without the Buddhist worldview, everything I'm saying really doesn't make sense. In which case, I don't demand anybody believe it. But you've asked a question within the context of Buddhist worldview. I'm answering from within that context. Fair enough, yeah? And so here... There are, the Buddha said that within all the, the whole range of reality, the whole universe, there's nothing more complex, more subtle and complex than the interrelationships of karma, right? And so a Buddhist analysis of this would be that this yogi had a very spe- special connection with that dog in probably some prior life. The strong karmic bond, such that because of the sincerity of his, motion, of his motivation and the fact that he had that karmic connection with the dog that opened up a conduit so he was actually able to take the dog's suffering upon himself, he experienced it and the dog was relieved. There are said to be other cases where this is true as well. That, that was simply a dog and a man. But you probably know that the, the relationship between a mother and a child and her own child. That's an extremely strong karmic bond, parent and child generally. And in, in a way, if anything, it's more with the mother because the child actually, of course, comes from the mother, right? So a very, very intense karmic bond. And so it can happen where these strong karmic bonds, and it's not just mother-child. It could be maybe two people who were man and wife in the past life, mother and child in the past life, closest lifelong friends in a last life, in a past life. But where there's some strong karmic bond a friendship, of spousal relationship, parent-child relationship, familial relationship, brother-sister, and so forth, some karmic bond that such that when a situation manifests in this lifetime and the motivation is sincere, one may actually transfer. Okay? But these are very hidden, because there's no, no way for an ordinary person to be able to predict that. Right? So it doesn't simply override karma, otherwise the buddhism Buddhists, would just be overriding karma all over the place, you know? It doesn't override karma, but there are these areas where it can be shifted, it can be taken upon oneself by the power of compassion but it has to be reciprocal, the karmic bond has to go both ways. So, that's that. It is complex. Uh, but coming back to the, to the important point, it's underlying your question, and that is, what's the primary purpose of engaging in such practice? And I think you know what it is. That the primary purpose of engaging in the practice is that when really cares more and more sincerely from the heart about the well-being of others so that one actually does care more for the well-being of others than oneself. And that if, if, if this could happen, one would actually be happy, right? That, when one sees that is the case, and so when you imagine taking on a person, another person's illness or sadness or whatever it may be, and you practice with utter sincerity, and then you see, oh, they still have the illness, Maybe even a little bit disappointment. Oh, I tried so hard. And they still have it. You know, Well, that would be, it's sincere. But the practice is working. The practice is working. And so this profoundly transforms the heart. And then one can join such very deep compassion, really taking upon oneself the responsibility, right? With that very deep compassion, then one infuses that compassion into one's practice of vipassana, of shamata, of vipassana, such that p- perhaps that possibly one can actually develop, you know, extraordinary abilities, powers, cities, that then the ability to actually, you know, use those powers to alleviate the suffering of others could actually become manifest. So that would be the larger vision, and then of course then we go back to the deep dharma, and that is we're still dealing with symptoms here: the dog got wounded, this person got sick, and so forth and so on. But how can, these are all treating symptoms, how can we go back to the source? And how can we then, in in short, become a great physician? A great physician. A great physician is one who not only has a very clear understanding of the symptoms. This person is anxious, this person is depressed, this person is so forth and so on. These are all symptoms, but but recognizes not only the symptoms, but the underlying causes, not only recognizes the underlying causes, it has such depth of wisdom and the power, and the powers, the siddhis, the clairvoyance and so forth, and the compassion that from individual to individual, one can recognize, oh, here is a unique individual here, right now, here, now, this individual, what would be the perfect, perfect medicine, right now, what would be just the perfect medicine for this person to take them the next step along the way, right? And for that, you need to be a Buddha. I remember I've been reading just slowly, slowly, a few pages, one page, two pages a night of this long commentary. It's like a 1,200-page commentary to the Dhammapada. And I remember one, oh, maybe a month ago I read one short account where there was a person, I don't remember all the details now, it's been a month or so, but where where the Buddha was aware that the person was very, very, very ripe, but wasn't quite ready. And the person came for teaching, the Buddha said, no, no, not yet, not yet. Not yet, not yet. Okay, now. And then gave it, and pooh, the person came in liberation really quickly. But he, just, he sensed, he had this profound awareness of when the person's going to be ready for just what type of teaching, what's going to be effective. And then waiting, waiting. Okay, now. And then gave. Oh, I look at that and say, oh, I want that ability. <laughs> you know. That's the great physician. That's the great physician. Anything else coming up? Sure. Go ahead, Nukala.
3: Hello. Um, My question is more about the uh, meditation practice. Um, Which one? Well, in general, the practice of mindfulness of the breath. Good. Um, I think I know what your answer is on this one, but I'll ask the question anyway. Sure. when practicing mindfulness of the breath, where we are engaging with a ob- objective object, the objective o- objects, an
0: objective object, yes, right. good,
3: okay. um, and uh, thought or series of thoughts come up, yep, and they won't go away, and you try to release them and release them and release them and release them, mm-hmm. uh, but it goes on for some time. Yeah, um, would you recommend that we then turn on to practicing settling the mind, where we observe how this mm. thought develops. And I'm asking this because I think it was yesterday you were talking about this dog that was barking. Yes, right. And exactly then, you right. Know, there's nothing you can do about it. That's
0: exactly right.
3: Uh, so should we treat internal phenomena in this way? That, you know, if it's persisting
0: so much and it's causing you grief and it's causing you... Yeah, frustration.
3: Yeah. Then
0: there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it happens. It's a very practical question. Very good question. Yeah. So you're practicing, you're trying to practice mindfulness of breathing, but something is nagging you. It's almost, again, you're like the fish in the talons of the eagle and you're fla- fla- flapping and trying to pra- practice mindfulness of breathing, and it says, No, no, I'm going to carry you away. Bye bye, you know? So, what to do? To sit there in practice, just as an, a rule of thumb, as a general principle, to sit in practice, continue in practice, and have an ongoing, enduring sense of frustration and failure is a bad habit. I wouldn't do it. Because it just it leaves an imprint on the mind. Yeah, I know what meditation's like. It's frustrating, and I can't do it well. And that's why people give up, by abiding in frustration and then feeling, I just can't do it, I'm a loser. And then they don't, don't even want to go back. I already tried that. I've heard people say, oh, I tried meditation. I couldn't do it. Let me try, try something else that they can do, samsara. They're good at samsara. <laughs> a lot of practice. Practice makes perfect, perfect samsara. Endless suffering. And so one way or another it's good to get out of the rut. So you remember one of my favorite words. I have two words I really and now I like them both. For sometimes I only liked one. Retreat and expedition. For some time I didn't like the word retreat. I think you know, yeah? Because retreat for some time had the sense to me of failure. You know, I'm trying to climb the mountain and then oh I can't, okay, retreat. I go into battle, I'm gonna win. Oh no, I'm not, I'm retreating. Yeah, help! Help! help yeah, you know, so I didn't like the connotation of retreat because it always seemed like failure. And then somebody just kind of refreshed my mind. That's not really what it means. To be routed in battle, to be routed. You know the word? Routed means oh, and you hold, you throw your gun up and you run away and you just ah like that. That's being routed. That's not a retreat. That's a route And you'll never come back because you've left your supplies, your everything. You completely failed. Right? Disgrace. But a retreat, a retreat is what really wise generals do. When they say, in this particular circumstance, I can't win. Our forces can't win. We're overwhelmed. We don't have the supplies. We don't have the retreat. It's the wisest thing to do, to disengage, because you can't win this battle. Retreat now. Bring your weapons. Bring your supplies. Maybe you need a good night's sleep. Maybe you need a good meal. Maybe you need reinforcement. But this is the smartest thing to do. Retreat. So that's what I'm suggesting here. When you're caught, retreat. Don't just get beat up. It's not fun and it's not helpful. Retreat can be the smartest thing to do, whether it's within the meditation, then move back, disengage. I can't win this battle. It's just gobbling me up. But likewise in life. Likewise in life. Sometimes, you know, a way of life, a circumstance, it's just overwhelming. I've been in, not often, but I have been in, in at least, I'm sure it has to be more than one environment, but always one comes to mind. Where the environment was just so strong it was overwhelming and it was negative and I tried and I tried and I tried to practice Dharma in that environment I couldn't it was just stronger than it was kind of like from all sides everything was just dysfunctional it wasn't like terrible people it was just dysfunctional and I couldn't be functional in this radically 360 degree dysfunctional environment and I tried and I just felt frustrated frustrated and frustrated and then I moved out of that environment and overnight I felt fine I said oh now here I can practice and there's a dysfunctional environment over there I'll come by for a visit once in a while when I feel like it you know <laughs> and everything was fine then right but that was a retreat that was a retreat but then and then gradually I could go back to that environment but I never never wanted to live there again and so there's retreat but there's also this word expedition expedition, a meditative expedition. An ex, ex, out, ped, foot. You're pulling your foot out from a place it's got stuck. That's what an expedition is, right? And so you've gotten stuck. You're in a rut. Some thought has captured you. You need to get an expedition to get out of there, to get your the, the foot of your mind out of the rut of these thoughts, these very obsessive compulsive thinking. So one way or another, retreat from it, but exped, get out of it. So there are multiple ways. You've suggested a very straightforward one, and it can be very effective. We have a a, a slang phrase in English: if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> right? If you can't beat them, join them. Right? And so if you've got this these these hordes of maras arising to meet you of emotions, thoughts, memories, and so forth, and they're just coming and assaulting you, well. You can say, never mind, I'm going to follow my breath. You know, (laughs) you can try that. Or you can say, I'm going to stop meditating. I'm out of here. I'm going to go jogging. You know, try to run faster than the thoughts, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of luck with that one. So you can try to get out of them that way. Or you can be like Buddha Shakyamuni on the morning of his enlightenment, where the hordes of martyrs were coming, and he just... I think he was practicing subtly in the mind in his natural state because he simply attended to them. Whether they were attractive, trying to enchant him back into samsara, whether they were malevolent and terrifying, trying to terrify him back into samsara, one way or another, they came in both varieties. But he just, he was in, unmovable. He was unmovable. And this is kind of like samsara's last assault. It was like all the malevolent forces of samsara just terrified now. Oh no, somebody's going to get away. And then we'll never get him, we'll never be able to hook him again. So, all of us now, let's have a total concerted effort gang up on Gautama, you know, don't let him out, because once he's out, he's totally irreversibly out. And what did he do? Boom. They couldn't touch him, no grasping, there was nothing for them to hold on to. And then he was vanquished even after the Buddha achieved enlightenment in the Pali Canon, it said sometimes Mara would come, almost like a little straggler, <laughs> you know, after straggler, and come to him, appear in the Pali Canon, and said, oh Gautama, you're fooling yourself, you've not, che- you've not really achieved enlightenment, you know, you're, you're, not, you're still in samsara, try to trick him. And the Buddha's response, oh Mara, I see you. And then it says, and then Mara would go away disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) So that's very much in the spirit of settling the mind in its natural state. That if you can't beat them, join them. All right? If the mind is being assaulted with memories, thoughts, and so forth and so on, okay, give it your best shot. Was that ferocious? (laughs) It's got to be bold. It's Betty Davis, I said. Old age is not for sissies. I think Betty Davis. Pretty sure. Old age is not for sissies. Settling the mind is not for settling the mind in its natural state is not for sissies. But if you're feeling bold, you're feeling strong. You say, okay, if you want to assault me, go for it. But I'm going to be watching you every step of the way. So go, give me give it your best shot. And it's not like you're tensing up with anger, resistance, or fear or protectiveness, just the opposite. There my fists go. Just the opposite. Awareness like space. Awareness like space. So as these arrows are coming in, awareness like space without distraction, without grasping. And whatever's ever coming in has nothing to hold on to. So you're emulating you're emulating the Buddha on the morning of his enlightenment. Whatever they come, they can't touch you. And that's exactly what Leda the 19th century Tibetan master, said. That when you become really accomplished in settling the mind in its natural state, you'll have a non-conceptual certainty. And that is just an immediate, direct certainty from your heart. You will know nothing can harm your mind whether or not thoughts have ceased. So that's real harmlessness. right? That whatever comes up can't cease and look at the powerful parallel, it's a magnificent parallel to being profoundly lucid in a dream because there's a whole gradient, you know, you can be a little bit lucid, more lucid, more lucid lucid in dreaming, knowing, knowing you're dreaming while you're dreaming recognizing the dream as you're dreaming, called lucid dreaming, right? imagine that you have very thorough insight, very deep insight and this is, can be accomplished, it's through training Insofar as you are really deeply knowing experientially, this is a dream. Everything that's taking place is a dream. This is all a dream. There is nothing really out there. Nothing out there from its own side. Then whatever arises, you're fearless. It's like looking at ugly rainbows, uh, rainbows, rainbows in the forms of atomic bombs, rainbows in the forms of butterflies, of Godzilla. Of Marilyn Monroe, whatever it is, hey, it's rainbows. Exactly. What exactly are they supposed to do? And this is what Gautham and Allen in this point, but this is what Gautham and Butcher told me when I was doing a six-month retreat on that practice. He said, when you go deeper in this practice, then you'll know whatever appears can't help you from the outside. It's not going to help you. It's just an appearance. What's it supposed to do? What's a, what's a rainbow supposed to do to you? You know, how is it going to make you happy? Just a rainbow. Whatever arises in your mind can't help you. And whatever arises in your mind cannot harm you. It's just an appearance. And you know that in lucid dreaming, and the practice of settling the mind in its natural state is becoming lucid with respect to your own mind in the waking state. So you become as fearless as Buddha Shakyamuni. At least you emulate that while sitting in practice. Right? With respect to your mind. That's why you're not a Buddha yet. But with respect to your mind, whatever comes up, fearless, because of the absence of grasping, and because of recognizing, as the Buddha said in his discourse to Bahia, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. You're recognizing the mental event as a mental event. It's empty, has no power to harm you or help you. Then you're free. Okay. So short answer, yes.
3: Thank you. just one, I have a comment about this. Uh, when you describe the settling the mind in these very advanced stages where you yes. actually are able to perceive and know, right? Uh, there seems to be two components. One is the intention to sit and face whatever's coming in your mind, mm-hmm. and then the other is actually knowing that the, it can touch you and you don't grasp to it. So often I have the first element, yeah, but... Um, more often than not, when I try to do it, um, I still, you know, get tense. Sure. Partic- because it's not just one thought, you know, there's many, 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 sure, many. Sure. Many. sure. sure. Um, so, in this way, uh,
0: just releasing
3: every time you, you catch on to something,
0: and bringing yourself back to, okay, yeah. I'm here. Releasing your grasping, but not releasing the thought, Re- in settling the mind. Don't release the thought. You don't need to get rid of the thought. That's the, that's the real subtlety and the essence of this practice. Whether it's a pleasant thought or an unpleasant, virtuous or non-virtuous, you don't try to get rid of it. You simply avoid totally the grasping onto it. And if you do not grasp onto it, it can't hurt you. Okay? So you are releasing something. In this practice, you are releasing something, but you're releasing grasping. So again, your awareness is like space and whatever comes up. Because of the lack of grasping, your awareness is like space. Because your awareness is like space, you can't be harmed. Okay. Mindfulness of breathing, these matters come up, blow them away. Release them, release the thoughts and the grasping, both. And just come back to the breath. But in settling the mind, just attend to them without grasping. Okay. That's enough for tonight. Have a good meal.